Well, good morning. If you don't know me, my name's Matt, and I'm one of the ministers here at Helensburg and Stanwell Park Anglican Church. I also want to say Happy Mother's Day to everyone. We had a wonderful morning this morning where Atticus, my son, uh, gave uh, Ella quite a number of cards. One of the cards said on it, Happy Mother's Day, Mom, I hope you have a great Mother's Day, and I hope that Dad does not annoy you. <laughs> and I thought to myself, Amen. yep, and I thought to myself, well, that's probably what every mother wants. And so I thought I'd say to all your mums out there, Happy Mother's Day, and I hope your husbands don't annoy you. <laughs> so today we are starting uh, just a two-part uh, series in the book of Esther. This morning, I am going to be preaching on Esther's chapter 1 to 4, and then next week, I'll be preaching on Esther 5 to 10. As we look at the book of Esther over the next two weeks, I hope you can recognize God's sovereign hand at work in both the book of Esther and in your life. There are times in my life when God has felt near to me, and there are times when God has felt far away. Could you say the same? There are times in my life when I have seen God's hand at work, and there are times when I cannot. Would you say the same? I don't know how you react to these times when God seems far away, But it is quite common to either blame yourself, blame God, or either sometimes we even blame other people. But have you ever noticed that throughout the Bible, there are also these different times? There are times when God's hand is easily seen. God's hand is displayed through miracles, through great times of triumph through a burning bush, or in clear and audible voices. And also, he is seen in his son Jesus. But there are also times when he hides his hand. There are times of great tragedy, and there are times when his people must believe without seeing. In the book of Esther, God's name is not mentioned, not even once. And so the way that we recognize God's sovereign hand at work is through people. It is easy for us to see God's work in the miraculous, but it is hard for us to comprehend that God might act just as effectively through mere humans. God's sovereign hand is at work in the entire book of Esther, even though his name is never mentioned. The book of Esther makes us ask the question then, what does it mean for God's hand to be at work in mere humans? What does it mean for God's hand to be at work in the life of Matthew Leach? What does it mean for God's hand to be at work in your life when you may not even see it? Let's pray as we look in more detail at God's word today and at his sovereign plan. Please pray with me.
Heavenly Father, help us as we look at the book of Esther to see that you are at work on every page. Give us the ability to understand and apply your word to our lives and help us to clearly see that your hand is at work as we live for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, our reading this morning didn't start at the uh, first chapter in Esther, at the beginning of the book. So we're going to go back uh, to look at uh, Esther chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 1, we are introduced to the king that we cannot pronounce. And if you try and pronounce it, or try and look up how people pronounce it, everyone pronounces it differently. So today the king is called King Ahasuerus because that's how I pronounce it. He is the king of Persia. Um, and also, it's quite interesting, if you use a different version, if you're using the name of the NIV, you might notice that the king is called King Xerxes. And I don't know why the ESV changes it. I think it's just to annoy us, because we can't pronounce his name. But anyway, King Ahasuerus is the king of Persia. And in verse 1, it tells us that he reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. So he was the king of the largest kingdom in the known world at that time. Prior to this, the Babylonians grew in power and size, and during the reign of the Babylonians, the Israelites, because of their disobedience to God, were taken into exile. They were taken out of the promised land and dispersed through the entire Babylonian kingdom. And then the Persians came and they conquered Babylon and established the greatest kingdom, a bigger kingdom that was that no that had ever known. It was the greatest kingdom in the world. It was large. It was powerful. And it was Wealthy, And in chapter 1, we see King Ahasuerus showing off his riches and his royal glory. For 180 days, he shows off his world dominance. And then, at the end of the 180 days, he puts on this elaborate feast that lasted another seven days. And the details of this banquet are enormously impressive. Let's read about it in verse 6. Esther chapter 1, verse 6. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinks was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. What a description of a party that you wanted to be invited to. Now, I don't know if you ever heard of this festival. It was a music festival that was called the Fire Festival. The Fire Festival was a luxury music festival that was meant to last three days. It was back in 2017, 
and it was going to be a music festival to rival any other music festival. Only the elite could afford the tickets because it was held on an island in the Bahamas uh, that was owned by none other than Pablo Escobar himself, the wealthiest man of his time. The fire Festival was promoted across Instagram and social media. It had the backing of celebrities from around the world, and it was going to be the largest, most elite music festival the world had ever seen. Imagine what it would have been like to hop on a private jet and fly into an island in the the Bahamas, stay at a luxury villa, eat as much food as you could, and at the same time, go to a music festival that was going to last three days. I mean, how amazing. I mean, you might even meet Ed Sheeran, get his autograph. Who knows what would happen? It would just be incredible. But that's not what happened. The guests, when they arrived in the Bahamas, instead of living and sleeping in luxury villas, they slept in tents. And instead of endless buffets of food, they were offered boxed cheese sandwiches. The organizers, actually, they just couldn't pull it off. They did not have the financial backing. They didn't have the resources to pull off, to pull off such a great and extravagant event. And so instead of being known as the greatest music festival of all times, it is now known as the greatest fraudulent music festival of all times. It is the greatest party that never happened. Now, unlike the fire festival, King Ahasuerus pulls off the greatest feast of all time. He actually does it. He has the wealth. He has the resources. And he has the power to do it. And he does it. But on the last day, when he was drunk with wine, he summons his wife, the queen, to show her off in all her beauty. And she says, no. Read with me verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. So notice the irony in this situation. King Ahasuerus, the king of the largest kingdom known to man, has put on the greatest feast of all times, but could not display the beauty of one woman, the queen. But it gets worse. The advice the king takes to deal with his rejection is ridiculous. It is comical, and it is so bad. In verse 19, a royal decree, an order goes out that states that Vashti is to never become come into the king's presence again. And then in verse 22, that every man be master of his own household. Now, if you don't have, if you don't live in a time of social media, of Instagram, you can still make sure everyone in your kingdom knows that you've made a fool of yourself by sending out a royal decree that tells everyone what's happened. 
And that's exactly what King Ahasuerus did. And this idea is ridiculous. And we're meant to actually see it that way. We're meant to see that it is ridiculous. And we're meant to laugh at the king's actions. And we are to realize that the king, along with the greatest kingdom known to man, may not actually be as remarkable as it appears. But even if this kingdom is not as remarkable as it appears, it is still enticing. It is still appealing. It is desirable. And just like the fire festival, we desire what the world has to offer we may realize that this world is not as remarkable as it appears, yet it is still enticing. It is still appealing. It is desirable in what it offers. Well, notice at the beginning of chapter 2 that we have the king remembering what he had decreed against Vashti, uh, because of what she had done. Vashti is out, and another queen is to take her place. And our reading this morning was actually the process by we, whereby Esther, a Jew, who was told not to make known her people, is chosen to be queen. And at, in chapter 2, verse 16, read with me again. It says, And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus in his royal palace, in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Esther is made queen, and then the next thing we hear about is an assassination attempt on the king that was actually prevented by none other than Mordecai, Esther's uncle. And chapter 2 comes to an end with Mordecai saving the king's life. It says, starting with uh, verse 22, And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now, Mordecai saves the king's life. But hold on a minute. At the very beginning of chapter 3, this starts with the king promoting Haman, not Mordecai. Haman the Agagite is promoted above all the other officials instead of Mordecai. Now here's where it gets really interesting. We are given information in this story that is really important to understand. We are told that Haman is an Agagite. And you may remember King Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites, in the Old Testament. And Mordecai is a son of Kish, 
a Benjaminite, and Kish was the father of King Saul, the very first Israelite king. And we are meant to make the link between the Israelites and the Amalekites. And remember what happened in 1 Samuel 15, where Saul was commanded by God to destroy the Amalekites. 1 Samuel 15 says, Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and women, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Saul was told by God to destroy the Amalekites because of what they had done to the Israelites when they came out of Egypt, when they were led out of Egypt. And so this is a rivalry, a hatred that has lasted generations, starting back when God brought his people out of Egypt. That's a thousand years before Esther. This is an ancient rivalry that is still at play in the book of Esther, a rivalry that we are seeing between two people, between Mordecai and Haman. And so that's why at the end of our reading this morning, chapter 3, verse 6, it says, But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, so, uh, so they had made known to him the people of Mordecai. Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. And so we are to wonder, how can Haman destroy all the Jews. How is it possible? Because it's no longer possible for Haman to grab an army and go down to the promised land to Israel and just wipe them out and destroy them because the Jews are a scattered people. They are scattered across the entire Persian Empire. It's also important to realize that Esther lived at a time after the 70 years that the Israelites were to be in exile. So at this point, it is after the prophet Isaiah called God's people back to Jerusalem. And so there are some people, some Israelites who have moved back down to Jerusalem and who are rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. But there are also Jews who are scattered still, that are kind of left behind throughout the entire Persian Empire. And all of these people called themselves Jews. But even more important than that is that the Jews are no longer an ethnic group. They were no longer just the descendants of Abraham. They were a mixed group who come to be known as the covenant people of God. As Israel grew in its heyday, others came to be part of this covenant people of God. They were God's chosen people spread across the most enormous kingdom. And so Haman, he wasn't interested in just killing one Jew. 
he wasn't just interested in killing the ethnic people, those who came from the line of Abraham. Haman was out for revenge. He was out to annihilate anyone who associated themselves with the God of Israel. This is a deep hostility against the people of God. And Haman's idea is remarkably effective. It's as if Haman saw that foolish decree that happened in chapter 1 and came up with this idea that he could have the king approve an edict that would be sent out across the entire kingdom, stating that on a particular day, the Jews were to be slaughtered. And this edict, like the one in chapter 1, was far-reaching. It went to the entire Persian kingdom, even to those who would return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. It included them as well, because they were still part of the Persian Empire. And this edict instructed a total annihilation for anyone who had come into a covenant relationship with God. Read with me chapter 3, verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. The annihilation of the people of God was to be carried out on one day. And this one day was actually chosen by Haman. And the way he did it was by casting lots. That is, by the roll of the dice. And it just happened that the roll of the dice um, meant that the day would be in 12 months' time. Now casting lots, rolling the dice, was a really common way of deciding things because what it meant is that the choice wasn't yours. It was actually in the hands of the gods. And so Haman, using this method, he did it so that there would be nothing that would prevent it from going ahead. But for us, we know that we have a clear explanation of God's sovereign work. Proverbs 16, chapter 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Notice with me that every little coincidence Every roll of the dice, every decision that is made, whether it is of the king or Haman or Mordecai or Esther, every decision is from the Lord. God's sovereign hand is at work. But look at the last chapter, last verse of chapter 3. It says, 3.15 says, The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king. The decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. 
but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So the edict does go out, and the fate of the people of God does not look good. The worldly kingdom, with all its power, is against the people of God. And today, as Christians, we stand up for what we believe. And when we do stand up for what we believe, the world and all its power is against us. Those who do not want to come under God's authority resent the beliefs of those who do come under God's authority. In our lives, at our workplaces, at our schools, even in our homes, Christians are resented. There is a hatred towards those who identify themselves as followers of Jesus Christ. And you may not see it as a personal attack on your life, but it is prevalent in our world today. There seems as though there is this unwritten edict against those who follow the sovereign and glorious Lord, who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. This unwritten edict is so prevalent in the news, in the way that the world views Christians and Christianity. But we shouldn't be surprised. In John chapter 15, Jesus explains this apparent unwritten edict. John 15 verse 18 says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus explains that when we find ourselves in a situation where we are hated by the world, we are to remember that they hated him first. Just like the edict in chapter 3, this edict is not only against the covenant people of God in the Old Testament, it is against God himself. It is the same for us. This unwritten edict is not just against us. It is against God's only son, Jesus. And so the question arises, when we find ourselves in this world that hates us because of who we are, how should we act? How are we to live in this world without belonging to it? Well, let's look at chapter 4 and see what we can learn from both Mordecai and Esther. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Mordecai here, along with all the Jews in every other province, mourned their potential future annihilation. But Esther, on the other hand, doesn't even seem to know about the edict. In uh, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 4, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. 
She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Here we have Esther inside the palace and Mordecai outside mourning. And Esther hears about this mourning and she doesn't even know what it is about. And so she just sends out more clothes, hoping that that'll fix the problem. But it doesn't. And so finally she sends out Haythatch to find out what is going on. This guy Haythatch. And Mordecai tells Haythatch all that's happened and gives him a copy of the edict and tells him to explain it to Esther and commands her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people, the Jews, who, if you remember, Mordecai told her previously not to even mention that she was a Jew. Now read with me Esther's response in chapter 4, verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's province know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Esther may be the queen, but she knows that she can't just walk into the king's presence without being called. And if she does, the consequence could be death. Mordecai knows this as well. And even still... Mordecai's response to this shows his faith, his belief in God's saving work, his understanding of what it means to be in covenant relationship with God. Read with me verse 13. This is Mordecai's response. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai explains to Esther the way in which God works in this world, God's sovereign plan for this world, is explained. Mordecai explains to Esther, God made promises to Abraham. He will have a people, and he will rescue his people. It will happen. Relief and deliverance will come. And maybe, just maybe, you, Esther, have been placed right here, at this particular time, at this point in history, to be a part of it, to be a part of God's sovereign plan. And Esther, after hearing Mordecai, says this in verse 16. She says, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also feast, fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, 
though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther, after hearing Mordecai, you could say something changes in her. What bold words she says, if I perish, I perish. And now because we're stopping at the end of chapter 4 today, we're forced to wonder what will happen next. When Esther goes into the king, what will happen She may be struck down before she even has a chance to plea for her life. She may plea for her life in front of the king, and it may make no difference. Or she may just be the one who mediates for God's people. In the words of Mordecai, who knows, maybe she has come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And I want to say the same to you. Who knows? Maybe you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Maybe God has placed you where you are for such a time as this. If you believe that Jesus died and rose again for you, Know this, friends, God called you, just like he did Esther, to identify as one of his people. You are called to be known as a follower of Jesus Christ. God has placed you in a particular workplace, at a particular school, in every particular situation to identify yourself as someone who knows and loves the Lord Jesus Christ. And if it costs you, it costs you. If you perish, you perish. And that is how we are to see our lives, whether we can see God's hand at work or not. And we can follow Esther's example because what she does foreshadows our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the one whom we are to imitate. We too are to be ready to lay down our lives every single day. And so the one, please turn with me to Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Luke 9:23 And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? This world may be enticing, it may be appealing, It may be desirable in everything that it offers, but it is just like the fire festival. It is not what it seems. So what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And so this is the challenge for us. 
we can we actually say these words from Esther? If I perish, I perish. Words that are echoed by Jesus when he calls up to take up our cross daily. Are you willing to say these words every single day? I will go, and if I perish, I perish. And if you did say these words every single day, how might your life be different? Now we're going to stop there, and you might like to ask a question or two using slido.com with the hashtag HBSP. I'll be back in a few minutes after a song to answer some of those questions. <laughs>